Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August the 15th, 2023, middle of summer. We've been focused, regular viewers, listeners of the show know on the history of social media and of blogging. We've been trying to go back, getting into our time machines and reminding ourselves of who invented all this stuff and what they were trying to do. Done lots of interviews with interesting characters, like my old friend Jeff Jarvis, one of the original bloggers. Um, Glenn Reynolds, another influential early blogger, uh, Mr. Instapundit. But perhaps the most iconic of the early bloggers, as well as one of the inventors of the technology of blogging, is my guest today, Dave Weiner. Doesn't need much of an introduction, a legend in technological circles, and the author of perhaps the longest running of all blogs, Scripting News. He's joining us uh, from New York today. Real honor to have him on the show. Dave, um, this term social media, is it a term you think has any value? I suppose. I remember when it was, it was the thing was invented by Clay Shirky. Um, and it was roughly around the, I, I think he liked, what was it, Live Journal? Live Journal had a lot of the precursors of, uh, of Twitter, Facebook. It had the idea of connections between people, which we had some of that in the blogosphere with uh, blog roles and stuff like that. But uh, I think it's fine. You know, nobody cares what you call it. We understand what it is, I think. So it's, a, it's fine. It's good. Is all media, Dave, though, social? I mean, obviously, blogging has its own social qualities, but media right from the beginnings, from print or even oral media, isn't it by definition social? I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's about people, right? I mean, what else is there but people in terms of news and media and stuff like that? Yeah, I suppose. So a lot of people connect you with the beginnings of blogging, both in technological terms, but also in terms of your own scripting news blog. You wrote an interesting piece um, uh, that you pointed me to um, on um, on. Um, Gizmodo from 2012. Why Dave Weiner invented the blog, uh, hmm. and you—I don't know. That if was, that was their title. That was their yeah. title. <laughs> we always blame the editors for inappropriate. Titles, yeah. Well, yeah. Is there any truth to that, Dave? Did you? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, yeah, I suppose. I mean, invention is sort of a an overused term. I mean, we are always stealing ideas from the people who came before. Um, but in that piece that you that you referenced there, it was interesting to go back and read it because there actually was a moment at which I had a sort of, um, I don't know, it just sort of occurred to me that I could use this as a way of broadcasting my ideas. And it worked phenomenally well when I tried to do that. Um, and uh, so in a sense, I guess it was invented. It was a whole series of of developments, I guess. I don't know. Um, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> well, the question was, going back in our time machines, why you invented the blog. Take us back, whether or not you invented it. You were certainly one of the one yeah. of the inventors. What well, years are we talking about? Sorry, but what, what, what are we? Years. I mean, oh, what years? Nineteen ninety-four was the big year for me. Um, 
a friend of mine, uh, Sally Atkins, suggested I didn't have I didn't have anything to do. I basically uh, had shut down my previous company, and uh, um, and I you know I didn't need a job, so I was out looking for things to do. And she said, "Why don't you go find out what this web thing is?" And so she sent me on a tour of various people that were doing stuff with the web in Palo Alto, California, and Santa Cruz, California. And, um, and I got a picture that uh, networking had been, networking had always been one of my uh, dreams, that we would actually be using the computers for communication between people. Um, you know, and so every chance I had to do stuff, I was a software developer for many years before 1994. Um, and it was always either really unreliable or very, very complicated or protected. You know, oftentimes the platform uh, vendor uh, didn't want anybody developing communication products for their platform. Uh, Apple, in particular, um, was very, very jealous of that. They had great networking on the Macintosh almost from the beginning, um, but it was really, really hard to figure out how to make software work for it. Um, but what I found was that the networking of the Internet had been done in such a way that it was, like, totally... There wasn't anything there. It was just like, you know, you open a connection, like we have a connection right now, between uh, two people, and you just start sending stuff, you know, back and forth. It's not complicated at all. And once I saw that it was that simple, I started prototyping a few things and seeing what could what could happen. And I basically didn't hit any walls at all. It was just everything I wanted to do just worked. And um, so I started doing experiments and seeing what I could come up with and. Uh, I had this um, Rolodex with all these business cards in it from all the conferences I had gone to, famous people in the tech industry. And I had their email addresses and email. Everybody had email, but it wasn't really much like it was like it is today. Um, and uh, so I sent around an announcement. A friend of mine was doing a product rollout. I sent around an announcement of that. And then there was a follow-up to that, and I sent out that. And then I realized I could use it to send out my own stuff. And I had been writing letters to uh, the CEOs of Apple and IBM. I wanted them to work together. And um, I'm sure they didn't read it. I'm sure it went right into the trash. And I said, well, here's this letter, and it's a good idea. I said, you guys ought to work together. Uh, IBM's operating system wasn't going anywhere. It was called OS2. And Apple had a great operating system in the Mac OS, but they were failing as a company. I said, why don't you guys get together and work, you know, IBM sell the Macintosh. Apple work with IBM and you know, nothing happened. So I just said, okay, fine. I'll just publish this letter. And that went out. Then I had some ideas about precursors to cell phones, which were called PDAs, personal digital assistants. And I sent out those ideas. And then a friend of mine who was a, um, one of the top executives at Motorola, which was a big player in that market at the time, he wrote back to tell me that I was out of my mind. I didn't have it right. None of this. I, I just thought these things would be uh, tethered to your personal computer. They, they the whole idea of using um, one of these little handheld devices at the time it is impractical to use it for in place of a computer. And so I had. Immediate thing. Here's this email from this guy who Randy Patat was his name, who is, you know, an authority on this stuff, and he's wrong. Okay, <laughs> I was convinced he was wrong, so I didn't say he was wrong. I just 
ran his email out to the same people. And then people got an idea that, wow, there's something going on here. I got that idea. And that was a moment of, of like epiphany for me, basically. I said, wow. And then all these big tech companies like Microsoft at, the, at that moment had completely locked up the personal computer software business. Windows had uh, taken over from, from IBM and Apple was nowhere. And he was going after AOL. He had a product, a service called Marvel that was, you know, AOL was the leading online system at the time. And I, and I wrote a piece called Bill Gates versus the Internet. I said, Bill Gates is lost. Yeah, he's going to be in uh, October uh, 1994, Bill Gates versus the Internet. Yeah, Bill Gates versus the Internet. And um, that he's lost and this is not going to work. And because I'm here, I am. Look, look at all that I am accomplishing as one person, just one person. I'm having all this impact, and their whole model didn't include the idea of people being what we would call today influencers, individuals having influence, right? It was like, it didn't work that way, and um, and it was, it really shook people up, and then I got a response almost immediately from Bill Gates himself, and so I did a little bit of editing work on it and cleaned it up, and I sent it back out, and that was the moment right there when I realized this is amazing. So hold on, let, let me ask you, maybe this is a dumb question, Dave. You said you wrote it. Where did you write it and how did you publish it? I published it by email. I, I had all these email addresses and, I'm, um, and okay. so I published the same channel that I was using to publish my own emails. I published Bill Gates' thing. And, uh, and Bill Gates is a pretty smart guy, right? <laughs> Uh, I yeah. think he knew. I, I think he knew I was going to do that. It was like total Bill Gates. I mean, you know, Bill Gates is, you know, he's bright, but he's also got his way. You know, and it was like nobody could have made that up. That was definitely Bill Gates, and um, and it went on from there. I kept calling people out things that I thought were wrong, that people were doing wrong, or where there were opportunities. I w decided to share my best ideas, ones that I was never, you know, I. I was never going to implement most of these things because, uh, well, like, you know, I wasn't definitely, I wasn't even really in the software business at that time. So, um, so I just decided let's go, let's just keep, you know, let's just keep doing this. And, um, and then out of that, I got a, offered a job to write for wired magazine. This was very early and, and wired was a phenomenon. It was incredible. And, uh, um, and then I got a taste of what it was like. And I, all the time, I was still publishing by email, too, and on the web. I mean, everything from the very beginning um, was on the web. It's all at scripting.com. The early stuff is at scripting.com slash DaveNet, D-A-V-E-N-E-T. And it's in cr reverse chronological order. And, you know, you can go there and read the stuff. Um, and it's 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 self-documenting. And you can see the re revelations. And, and then I covered... Um, all the browser wars, you know, Microsoft said they got it. Bill Gates wrote a piece later that year where he more or less wrote the equivalent of my Bill Gates versus the Internet. He didn't say, well, you know, we've lost. But what he did say is now we're going to turn the whole company in this direction of the web. And um, that was uh, his, his Internet tidal wave memo. Yeah, exactly. And I felt like, well, okay. No, I don't really want you to do that, Bill, <laughs> because it's the last. I mean, the beauty of it was at that time that uh, 
there was all of a sudden there was all this freedom, you know, and uh, where everything, why did I, you know, why did I shut down my company? Because we got shut down by Apple. Apple didn't like what we were doing. And so they announced they were going to compete with us and you know, our business just completely evaporated. It's, it was too easy for them to knock us out. And, um, and everything, everywhere you look, there were these barriers to entry. And now all of a sudden there were no barriers to entry. So Bill Gates's reaction is great. We'll just put the barriers back up where we want them. <laughs> and it didn't work. It didn't work. It did not work. Um, they, uh, they thought that they would turn the web into a feature of Microsoft Office. And that was exactly how they played it. And, uh, and by that point, people understood that, um, that they didn't want it to be part of Microsoft. That was part of the appeal of it, is that it wasn't Microsoft. Later on, um, a few years later, we came out with podcasting. And uh, it was a similar sort of process in that uh, people understood right from the beginning that this was an open uh, medium and that uh, you could use whatever tools you wanted to to listen to a podcast and that you weren't locked in. And every attempt to lock down that has failed because people know they have choice. They know they have freedom. And everybody thought, oh, well, Spotify is going to take over podcasting or Google's going to take it over or Apple's. It never worked. It didn't happen. Because what happens is the people learn that they're entitled to their freedom and they don't give it up. And it's, there's something very encouraging about this because there's a tremendous amount of cynicism in tech that says that, you know, it's always going to get taken over. And there certainly is that element to it as well. I mean, Facebook and, and Twitter to a lesser extent and, uh, you know, and Google, of course, Google so, so, sort of. Yeah. So I want to get to go. I want to get to Google and all that. And, sure. and Elon yeah, yeah. Musk later. But you, you said uh, you got this great phrase. All of a sudden there was all this freedom. Yeah. It required guys like yourself to create technology to enable mm -hmm. that freedom. Not so anyone could. There was no such thing as blogging. You had to create technology that allowed anyone who wasn't a, a, tech, a technological wizard to be able yeah, to publish. But that's their exactly what we did. That's exactly what we did. We worked on that for years. I mean, it, it, it wasn't until 1999, so five years later, that we found the, the secret that would make it possible for anybody to do it. And what was that secret? It's called Edit This Page. It meant that, you know, what made it all so complicated previously was that you had to, you had to have a pretty abstract view of how content comes from your computer and gets onto the net, right? But, and so if you want, if you see a mistake on a page that you wrote and you want to fix that mistake, I wrote it down. It was like 20 steps and they were all complicated. And so once I had that picture, sense that okay here are the steps now let's just work on reducing those steps to as few steps as possible make it as simple as possible as it possibly could be and the and we got it down to three steps which is you know you see the mistake you look around on the page and you see a button that says edit this page you click the button there's the now the text is in an edit box and you make your change so that's two steps and the third step is to press the save button and now your changes are on the web so didn't have to be very complicated and this is what 
good software developers do, right? What's wrong with that? We love to create things that people can use. That's the turn on of being a software. It, it sounds so simple, Dave, and yet you know better than I do. It no, it's hard. Easy, because if it was easy, everyone would have done it. No, it isn't easy, and and you have to know that that's what you're trying to do, and you know that trying to simplify things is something that uh, most software developers don't know that that's what they're supposed to do. In fact, oftentimes, well, there is this almost cultural difference. The divide in software there is the priesthood which says we want to keep people away from the technology because it isn't safe if they get their hands on the technology they're going to screw everything up so that's very prevalent in technology it's always been there all for my whole career i mean <clears throat> you know i've been in software since uh, mid 1970s right and that was what the personal computer was about, Andrew. I mean, you know, it's it, this isn't a new idea. It wasn't new with the web. It was sort of we, my generation, in the same age, exact same age as Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, born in 1955. <clears throat> and when we looked at the situation, we saw, well, you could take a job working for one of these big companies, and your job is going to be to keep them installed as the, the, the bosses of everything. And... And then they had their people inside the big companies, you know, too. And they, everybody wanted to keep the people away from the technology. And then, you know, I guess it was Apple that blew it open. And there were a bunch of different, you know, ventures there. And uh, all of a sudden, they're sneaking the computers in through the back door. They're so cheap, they don't even notice it. And people get their hands on the computers and basically they can use them. <laughs> You know, Let's that go was back really, to this, that, this moment yeah. in 1999 when you did this edit, this page. What what happened? What was the month? What, what was the product? It was called Manila. That was the product. <clears throat> and um, it, was the, it was one of the first blogging platforms. I, bit had a, I had blogging platforms all along, except we didn't call them blogs at that point. But it was the idea. It was always making it easier step by step. And then after Manila, we came out with Radio Userland. These were all contemporaries of things like Blogger and uh, Movable Type, um, WordPress. WordPress came out some, mm, I, I don't know, I think it was like 2004, roughly in the time frame. WordPress is basically the survivor of that generation. It's the one that's still out there. And it's huge, of course. And uh, I think they've done a good job of preserving the, uh, the vision. I think they've done a, a fine job, actually. I'm glad they're there. Your name is also associated with something that people call RSS. How is this yes. connected? And when, when did you invent that? Well, I definitely wouldn't say I invented that. Okay. Well, you pioneered. You were one of the pioneers. Yeah. Well, I was, yes, I had, the, I had all the tools and all the power to make it happen. That was the, um, you, you asked, you want to know how it happened? Well, when, um, give me again a, a time frame. Well, okay, so the, um, 1997 was the first work that I did in that area, um, and I didn't really believe in it, to be honest with you, Andrew. It was a case where a lot of the big companies were pushing this technology called XML, and uh, my, the guys at Microsoft, I, by the way, in the whole process, even though I say I don't want Microsoft to succeed at taking over the web, um, I developed a lot of friendships with people at Microsoft. I respected the company for a lot of its values i thought were fine except for this megalomaniac thing and 
they decided they wanted to invest in XML and they needed people to adopt it. And so they were pressuring me. They said, why don't you do something with XML? And so I said, okay, what I'll do is I'll XML eyes my blog. And what that means is, you know, the stuff that you read on the screen can also be turned into something that a machine would read, not a human being would read. That's, that's the difference between RSS and, uh, and the web page. And so when you feed, that's the other term, feeds, when you feed that machine-readable stuff into a piece of software, well, you do it alongside with, say, 50 other feeds, and then whenever one of them updates, well, that comes in. It sort of like creates a, a mega blog, really. You know, it's like I'm going to take 50 different blogs, and I want to look at them in the order in which they update. So when something new comes along, just show it to me. So you can think of it as like in prior to feeds, what you had to do was um, you had to go sort of like go look, go to the place and see right. if there was anything new, right? And what feeds did was says, well, we'll do that for you. We'll do all the looking. And when something new shows up, we'll just show it to you. Yeah, and a lot of people will be listening to this on an RSS feed from the, the Keenon uh, podcast. Otherwise, they wouldn't know about it. Right. Well, I would guess that your, your, your listeners are pretty much familiar with that technology. I mean, um, yeah. And it, so uh, it got very popular. The reason why I got, uh, well, I mean, I loved it. Once, once I saw that it could do that, and we worked with Netscape very briefly, uh, I, I saw that they were, adopting this technology they did they did their own format i had my own previous format it was called scripting news format lack total lack of imagination and they came out with something called rss and they it was version 0.90 and uh based on my experience with apple i decided i'm not going to fight them on this if they want to do their own thing i'm just going to say fine we're going to do it your way and they already had the the beauty of it was at this time netscape which maybe a lot of people haven't heard of was the leading or one of two leading browser companies. Mm, it was so Mark Andreessen's thing. Mark Andreessen's company. And, uh, and so when they went around to various publications and said, Hey, we're doing this thing. Would you like to support this? A bunch of them said, yes. And that was the thing that really got it going. So it was salon, red herring, wired and motley fool. Those were the first four publications Along with, and then because we had one of the leading blogging platforms, all of our blogs came along with it right from the start. We put the feature into our product, and so all of a sudden there are thousands of RSS feeds out there. And then what happens is Netscape blows up. The company just blows up. They sell out to AOL. Everybody leaves, and we're left with, okay, now what? And then there was a whole bunch of confusion for a couple of years. And uh, finally, um, I just it wasn't just me that decided. It was a sort of collective decision that's like, why don't we just straighten this whole thing out? And so we came out with RSS 2.0, and we got the New York Times. That was the big deal. At that moment, we got the New York Times on board. I had been working with them, trying to get them to go. And they, they said, fine, here's your license. We got all their content. And we had a great simple format called RSS 2.0. And then something beautiful happened. All of the publishing industry got behind it. 
you know, the New York Times is big. What year was and, this? Uh, 2002. That was the big year. We just had the 20th anniversary. It was 2002. That was when RSS 2.0 came out. Um, and that was also when the New York Times feeds came out. And if you go back and read my blog in that period, it's and I did do that in, for the 20th anniversary. I did a whole review of what was going on in the RSS world uh, just to see where we were at. And, um, and so I reread all the archives and everything. It was amazing how much innovation was going on in the publishing world. They don't even know in the publishing world. They don't even know that they did this, you know. I don't have any memory of it. <laughs> it was something. Um, and uh, so in those few years, and then we came out with a product called Radio User Land, and it had both the blogging in it and RSS reading in it. And that product was huge, just sold enormously. And, uh, and that got us going, and everybody copied it. And, well, it had mixed feelings about that, <laughs> but it worked, you know. And then Google came along and screwed the whole thing up. So, Dave, you, you you and I both know Tim O'Reilly quite well. Um, he came up with a term with uh, Dale Doherty, the Web 2.0, which I think came up in about 2003. But listening to you, I mean, what you were doing was Web 2.0 before Web 2.0. You were building, how, oh, how do you oh, think of it? You're building yeah. like the foundations for Web 2.0. You know, Tim O'Reilly was really good at running out in front of the parade and saying, look, I created this parade. <laughs> He's a tremendous promoter. I wrote an article about two weeks, three weeks before they invented Web 2.0. Uh, you can look it up. I came out with an article that said Internet 3.0. <laughs> I said, that's what, what, what all this is. So it's very innovative of Tim to say, oh, well, Web 2.0, fine, you know, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I didn't do it way before it. I did it at the same time. That was, they were just writing about what I did. But what you were pioneering, you and others, is allowing anyone to essentially publish text, audio, eventually video on the Absolutely. internet without any technological skills. I mean, that's the key, right? Yes, that's the whole idea. The whole idea was to say, look, let's try it a different way. Journalism wasn't working. That was that was another thread in the whole thing. I mean, another reason that I was went out of business in, prior to 1994 was that journalists were out there saying there was no new Mac software. This was a constant theme. They were writing stories like no hope, you know, no market share for the Mac, so developers won't develop for it. There's no new software. It's all over, you know. And so all these journalists, they all used Macs. They all knew that there was new Mac software. We were all It was booming, actually, because the Mac was by far the strongest platform on the web when it first came out. So they knew, they have like two versions of the truth in journalism. One is the truth, and the other one is the conventional wisdom truth. And what they report is the conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom says this is all crap and it's not working and Mac is dying. It's like they still do this. It's like, you know, I don't want to bring politics into this, but if you watch what they do on TV, they, they, they just leave very important facts out. So um, I was part of the sort of, I don't know, part of the breakthrough that I saw in this when I first started blogging was, wow, I can get around journalism now. 
I can go straight to the people that I want to influence without having it filtered by journalism. Because when they quoted me, they would always say, you know, Dave Weiner, the dead software developer who can't get anything to work because he's only on the Mac. <laughs> well, you eventually give up trying that way because like, well, who's going to buy that guy's software, right? But um, what I found was we could, I mean, look at all the success that we had between 94 and 2002. And all of that was generated without going through journalism. In fact, they fought us. They really did. They had all this stuff. They wrote articles about us that were obviously paid for by big companies like IBM. Um, they wrote an article, CNET wrote an article that said that Userland is pushing around all these big, they didn't call them big companies. They said we were the big company. And at the time we had like 15 employees, not even. It's like, it was totally backwards. We weren't pushing anybody around. All we were doing was just following the story basically, it, you know, which is basically let's give the people the means to do what, what to get the information out there. It worked. It so really you've worked. You've never been shy criticizing mainstream journalism, uh, mainstream Why? media. I, well, I love them too, Andrew. I mean, yeah. Well, we all, yeah. But, but, but my question is: Do you think it was any coincidence? I mean, we're living at a particularly acute moment when people don't trust any media. Was it coincidental that the tech, the guys like you, were creating the technology? to allow anyone to publish anything they wanted at the same time as people were losing trust in the New York Times and CNN and, 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 and top-down media? Uh, well, I think they lost trust in the New York Times and the rest of the media before that happened. I think that, uh, and, 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 you know, to be perfectly clear, I mean, some of the things that you wrote in that time frame turned out to be uh, visionary true <laughs> i didn't want to think that they were true but they turned out to be true that we had nothing but blue sky we thought everything's going to be wonderful once the people take over we're going to great stuff's going to happen and i remember the first time that i heard the idea that there were uh i guess what they amount to is bloggers who were deliberately writing things that were not true <laughs> And it had not occurred to me that that would happen. So that's how I had the blinders on. You know, it's like, why didn't I see that coming? I didn't, you know. Who were I just, they? Do you remember who they were? I think it was in the time frame. Well, it was in, um, it was fairly late, Andrew. I mean, it was like, uh, mm, it was in, it, it was when Trump came along. And uh, ah. yeah, I mean, I didn't. I mean, I saw it happening before um, in certain cases. Like, people were, like, the big companies were telling lies about us when they didn't like RSS. They did not like what we were doing with blogs, with RSS, with any of it. They didn't like it. And so they would, you know, they always say they didn't do it, okay? But they always had people that would do it for them, or they had employees who they say were acting on their own, but they still worked for those companies. And um, so, yeah, I think there were always sources that were trying to, you know, deliberately tell, say things that were not true. But it really became a problem in, in, the, in our lives when you know, politics turned completely in that direction. Let's just go back to the mid-90s briefly, Dave. Uh, sure, you, sure. you wrote in that Gizmodo essay that um, 
you were you remember exactly where you were and uh, when you came up with a lot of the ideas you're on highway 280 wonderful yep. road coming from the south bay towards san francisco in a new bmw you've always been a car guy even your latest um Oh, yeah. news pieces about a crash you just had in your uh, someone bumped into you in your uh, in your tesla it, no it wasn't a crash i mean it was like it they got bumped me into you. They, yeah they bumped into me and i was so sad i mean i love my tesla Tesla's right, so i got a white too what color is yours white it's yeah, white so yeah. let's go back to that drive on 280 remind me of that and why you remember it so well still well, it was up to that point, I had been pushing other people's ideas out over my channel that I had developed. And that was when I realized I could publish my ideas. <laughs> this could be a way for me to become more powerful. And uh, well, I always wanted to be more powerful, Andrew. <laughs> you know, I have things to say. As you say, I'm outspoken. I have ideas. Um, and nothing is more frustrating to me than to be, you know, shut up and not allowed to express my ideas that that is not my nature my nature is i want i want and i like to hear other people's ideas too that's why i was so driven to to make this stuff easy and accessible it's also why i went to harvard um and i really worked to get there uh because i felt that there wasn't enough intellectual uh um there wasn't enough intellect in the blogosphere and i wanted to convince these great minds at harvard that they could do this too it didn't quite turn out that way, but I don't know what. Oh, sorry. So Go ahead. one of the amazing things about and I, amazing things about you is I don't understand how you how long you've been doing scripting news. Wow. Well, it's uh, almost twenty nine years. Be and thirty. You basically, years. you basically blog every day, right? I do. Yeah, I do. How because have you done that? Did you ever get sick of it? No. Are you kidding? If I got sick of it, I wouldn't do it. I mean. No, I'm a, I'm what I call an NBB, which is natural born blogger. <laughs> it's just we there are always have been natural born bloggers, Andrew. There are people that just have ideas and are impulses to write them. You know, I got that from my mother. My mother was not very technologically literate, but boy, was she an opinionated person, and she was a blogger. I mean, she she would never. If she had an outlet for her ideas, if she had a way to express them to the world, even if nobody read it, she would still have blogged it, you know? She was a yeah. school psychologist, right? Yes, that's exactly what she was. Yep. yep. Yeah, you've been doing this. I mean, it's astonishing. And what lessons would you give people who kind of give up and start something and then don't finish it? That's fine. No problem. People feel that they create, when they start a blog, they feel like they have an obligation to keep posting to it. I've never subscribed to that one bit. A, doc, a blog is a document. It's like if you were to start writing a letter to somebody and then you'd never finish the letter, would you feel guilty about that? I don't think, I wouldn't. It's just like, you know, you didn't have anything more to say, so you didn't say anything more. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing. There was a point in time, Andrew, when I thought that everybody would blog. I really did. And um, I'm not sure I ever said that in my blog, but I really did think it. And uh, over time, I learned that, no, most people won't blog. It's not in their nature. It's not what most people do. Would it be fair to say, Dave, that in a sense, everyone does it when you post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram right. or on 
Yes. WhatsApp or uh, uh, certainly on TikTok, you're blogging just in a different form. Absolutely. No question about it. It's the same thing. You know, it's uh, no difference. And now they call them influencers instead of bloggers. You know, they have different motives, maybe. I don't know. It certainly has developed, but it's the same idea that individuals have things to say and can make contributions and can get things done. You know, two people you mentioned at first, Glenn Reynolds and uh, Jeff Jarvis. Uh, and Jeff Jarvis, right, sorry. Um, they are obviously both highly intelligent and opinionated, experienced people. And I don't think you'll ever get either of them <laughs> to shut up. I don't think that's in the cards, right? I mean, these are outspoken people, and God bless them, you know? I mean, I, I don't hope that everybody's going to do it, but I think that the people who want to do it should do it. So, But you're absolutely right that, I mean, I do a fair I do a fair amount of blogging on Facebook. I love Facebook, actually. Um, I don't love the company. kind of hate the company, actually. But Facebook itself has been an incredible thing for me. I mean, it's, and for, for all the people, because of the people that are accessible through Facebook that I couldn't get to any other way and I couldn't hear from them. You know, these are people I love. These are people I've known for ages and I can be in, in touch with them. I think that's awesome. I think it's great. Dave, when we look back now, I mean, you've lived through this whole thing from the mid nineties and you're one of the pioneers of blogging, RSS, everything we've talked about. How much do you think all this has shaped the last 25 years? Is it sort of is it defining our politics or is it a consequence of our politics, our culture, our economics? Oh, it, it's defined it in the sense that um, I'll tell you how I would have put it before. I, I and everybody thought this was crazy. Um, but I once said that there will be a point in time where everybody in Congress is a blogger. Um, I once went to a, a seminar at uh, the journalism department at University of California, Berkeley. There were all these famous people there. I got up and, and stood up. They were very much anti-blogging. They just thought all the money that goes, Apple should just give them money so that they could do journalism. We were talking about, well, how will courts be covered if the journalists aren't able to do that? And I said, the judge is going to blog. You don't have to worry about that. You're going to find out what happened there. And they laughed. They said, that's crazy. Judges are never going to blog. And hey, judges blog. <laughs> I mean, it's taken for granted. Um, look at the look at the incredible accomplishment that Twitter is. You know, I mean, I didn't see that coming the way it did. But it's now where political discourse happens. And, you know, Elon Musk is doing everything he can to delete it. But... Um, but it's still, it's going to be very hard for him to destroy that thing. It's, it's got a huge amount of momentum, but it's where our politics takes place. It's where discord happens. I mean, it's, it's achieved, Andrew, and it is this technology that we did back then. I'm not saying that I created it. I'm just saying that um, I saw the opportunity and wanted to be part of it and wanted to do my part of it, which is, you know, I, I feel I made a really good decision early in my career that, you know, I, I found, uh, found out that I was really good at programming and that I loved it. It was like playing video games for me. And I also loved writing. And the two things put together were explosive. I mean, and I knew that right from the very beginning, Andrew. I mean, the first time I sat down at a Unix machine and saw what you could do with a Unix text editor, 
I thought, well, this is it. This is all I'm ever going to work on. I knew at 22 exactly what I would be doing. I'm 68 now, and this is what I've been doing the whole time. I knew it. It's like, this is what I was put here for, to do. Dave, let's end with something about Twitter. You mentioned Musk and Twitter. In a Mm -hmm. sense, are we back to where we began in the mid-90s when you didn't want to work for Microsoft or IBM or Apple? You wanted to do your own thing. All of a sudden, there was all this freedom, and yet there were also all these huge, powerful companies. We are back at that point now where you've got multi-billionaires like Musk trying to control us, and yet all we want is... I don't think Musk is that important, no. But I do agree with the statement. Um, I've recently had a lot of contact with um, with young people, young tech, people working in technology companies. And these the people I've been working with, they're brilliant, and they're well-educated, and they're outspoken, and they're curious, and they're all these great things. But to them, the idea of individuals creating new technology is kind of a foreign idea it not kind of it is a foreign idea and uh and it's it's far andrew is far more established than it was um when i was their age when i was even younger i mean uh because it's so much bigger right i mean um but there's reason to be optimistic because because they still have the bright eyes, <laughs> still want there to be a great future. And as long as that's the case, then I'm happy to be part of what's going on. I love it. It's great. You know, and now I'm in a different mode. Now I'm trying to, um, to make sure that the ideas that we, that we, the things that we created, the ideas that, that we developed, that those survive, that those don't go away. And um, so I'm not necessarily that, concerned with creating new things rather than to make sure the options are still there for what we accomplished. You, you said you came up with the term Web3 before even uh, O'Reilly came up with the Web2 idea. People well, now call, talk about Web3, I, Dave, as... Oh, that's... Excuse me, that's bullshit. If you, I hope you're, you're, you're allowed to say things like that on your thing. You say that, whatever you like. Yeah, that's bullshit, right? Web3. That's yeah, already... Everybody knows it's bullshit too, right? Don't we know that, Andrew? Well, you need to explain why. I mean, Blue Sky and Mastodon no. are they bullshit too? No, so that's not Web three. They don't. That's not. They don't call it Web three. It isn't. No, what they call Web three is pure opportunism. It's like, I don't know. It's um. It's like if you came out with a, a new car, and you decided to call it uh, Mercedes. Well, that would be a nice thing, except it isn't a Mercedes. <laughs> You know, <laughs> great, very nice idea, but you, you didn't make it a Mercedes. You know, you need to call it what it is. It's very opportunistic. It's a complete, I mean, it's it's Silicon Valley at its worst. Let's not even, let's not end there, Andrew, for crying out loud. Well, let, but a, let's end then with the hope on a positive note. You said you believed in. Hope new- is the young, the young folks today. They are bright. They are skilled. And they respond to the same things that we responded to. And freedom is the impulse to be to to not just to be free yourself, but to create tools that give people freedom. That's alive and well, and it's strong. And I believe in that. Still believe in it. Crazy, right? But I do. <laughs>